since it is Mother's Day, why not talk about mothers for a moment this morning? Now, I want you to think, if you were to make a top 10 list of the most faithful women in the Bible, a list of the Bible's 10 most important spiritual women, who would make the list? I'm going to give you just a second to think about that. Who would be on your top 10 list of women in the Bible? Think about that for just a second. Now, you may recall that earlier in this whole quarantine situation, back in March when it began, Jay put together the Bible edition of March Madness that he introduced to the BYG and opened it up to the entire congregation. And if you go back and look at that material, if you look at the bracket he created, you'll get a pretty good summation of the biblical women that are generally accepted as the most important from a spiritual standpoint. There's a whole bracket side called Wonderful Women. And in that section of the bracket, he listed Mary and Sarah and Ruth, Hannah, Esther, Rahab, and Deborah. That's eight amazing women in the Bible. But then he had another section called Lesser Known Leaders. And on that side of the bracket, he also had Abigail and Lydia and Dorcas listed. That's a total of 11 different women who are exceptional characters in the narrative of the Bible. But there was one woman that didn't make the list and probably wouldn't make your top 10 list either. And as you can tell by the screen behind me, that woman is Rebecca, the wife of Isaac and the mother of Esau and Jacob. See, I don't think Rebecca is someone we think about as a top 10 woman in the Bible. But I think that has more to do with our preconceived notions about Rebecca than it does with what we actually read about Rebecca. Many preachers and commentators, including myself in the past, have traditionally viewed Rebecca in a negative light. Just listen to how Rebecca is described in the Truth For Today commentary's introduction to Genesis chapter 27. This is what is written there. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was strong-willed, and controlling. She manipulated matters in the home and even took advantage of her husband's blindness to secure his blessing for her favorite child, Jacob. That description of Rebecca makes her sound deceitful, selfish, and merciless. It gives the impression that she's not a godly person, but is that a fair summation of the character of Rebecca? Today, on a day that honors women, particularly mothers, I want us to take another look at Rebecca because I believe she is a woman whose worth often gets overlooked. And the whole point of this sermon is to remind you, whether you're a woman or a man, a wife or a husband or neither, a mother or father or neither, you are neither, you are never overlooked by God. That's because the life of Rebecca shows us that God is your father who sees in secret, to use the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. And that means that he sees what's going unseen by everybody else. And so today, let's consider what God saw when he looked at Rebecca and what he sees when he looks at us. First and foremost, God sees 
those who sacrificially serve. God sees those who sacrificially serve. We are first introduced to Rebecca in Genesis chapter 24 when Abraham sends his servant to procure a bride for Isaac. Now, this is not an easy assignment for the servant because Abraham had a couple of stipulations. The first stipulation was that the bride must be from Abraham's own family. This meant that the servant would have to travel back to Mesopotamia where Abraham was living when God called him. And he's going to have to search for the family of Abraham, particularly Abraham's brother Nahor. And this stipulation made the servant's task difficult, but not impossible. The difficulty lie in the fact that Abraham has seemingly been out of contact with these relatives for 65 years. And the reason Abraham wants a relative to be Isaac's wife was ultimately to protect his covenant with God. Abraham knew that if Isaac married one of the Canaanite women, she might sway him toward her religion. And that would result in jeopardizing God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And so Abraham has instructed his servant to procure a wife from among his relatives. That's the first stipulation. The second stipulation is that Isaac can't go. Isaac must not leave Canaan. Now, the servant's task may have been difficult because he had to find a wife from Abraham's extended family. But this made the servant's task almost impossible because the servant couldn't take Isaac with him. The standard protocol of the day was for a man to leave his family and to live near the bride's family. I mean, that's the point of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, which says a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. But in this instance, the servant has to convince a woman to leave her family and relocate to the groom's family. Those are the two stipulations. The wife must come from Abraham's family, and Isaac can't leave Canaan. But despite these stipulations, Abraham assured his servant that God would take care of the selection process. So when the servant arrived in Mesopotamia, he asked God to give him a sign that would reveal who should be Isaac's bride. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 24. And I want you to see what the servant prayed when he arrived in Canaan. I, I'm sorry, when he arrived in Mesopotamia. Genesis chapter 24, beginning in verse 12. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of, men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. See, the servant wants God to reveal the right candidate by her willingness to draw water from the well for him and his camels. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to you and I, but the servant's requested sign is very unique. 
See, when the servant asks a young lady if she would give him a drink, he expects her to say yes because it was the custom of the day for people to show hospitality to strangers by supplying them with a drink from their well. But it was not normal for someone to go the extra mile by providing water for all of a guest's camel as well. And here's why. A camel that has gone a few days without water can drink as much as 25 gallons of water. Now, the ancient jars they used to use to draw water from the well usually held no more than three gallons. So do some math there. The servant brought 10 camels that could drink up to 25 gallons each. And the woman would only have a jar that could hold three gallons per draw. That would result in her drawing water 80 to 100 times from that well to fill up those camels. And yet that's exactly what Rebecca offers to do. Look at Genesis chapter 24, verse 18 through 20. When the servant requested a drink, Rebecca, we're told, quickly let down her jar and gave him a drink. Verse 19 says, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. Did you notice how Rebecca went about this task? She quickly drew water. She ran to the well. She drew water for all his camels. These descriptions indicate that Rebecca was ready to serve at a moment's notice. In other words, she wasn't picky with her service. She wasn't choosy with her service. I think, I think Rebecca was the type of woman who was willing to serve at a moment's notice. And when she encountered this servant by the well, she was ready to serve. But this information about her quickly drawing and running to the well and drawing for all the camels, it also tells us that Rebecca was going to serve to the best of her ability. In other words, she didn't serve with minimal effort. She served with maximum effort. I think Rebecca was the type of woman who was willing to go above and beyond the call of duty when it came to her service. And so Rebecca's fulfillment of the servant's request not only revealed God's divine intervention here, but it also revealed her servant spirit. It revealed that Rebecca was a second mile servant. And that's an expectation that God has of all of us, as we saw in last week's lesson. See, God expects us to be second mile servants, just like Rebecca. Do you remember what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 through 24? He said, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And I think Rebecca modeled such a mindset. Even though she wasn't familiar with God yet, she served with a greater purpose. It was unselfish. It was unconditional. It was fervent. And this is evident by the fact that she was willing to do more than she had to do on this occasion. 
And that may be the very reason God chose her to be Isaac's wife in the first place. When we look at Rebekah, we're looking at someone who modeled service in such a powerful way. Rebekah was one who sacrificially served, and God sees those who sacrificially serve. But that's not the only thing that's unique about Rebekah. Because her story also tells us that God sees those who unconditionally yield. So if we continue the story of Rebekah, we find that the servant goes back to her house with her where he meets her parents and her brother who was operating as the head of the clan at the time. And he told them what he was there for, that he was seeking a bride for his master's son. And they agreed to the union. Rebecca's family agreed to the union. But when Abraham's servant pushed them to allow him to return home immediately with Rebecca, they were a little less agreeable. Look at what happened in Genesis chapter 24, verses 54 through 58. We'll start about halfway through verse 54, where we're told that when they, that's Abraham's servant and those who were accompanying him, when they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. What a powerful decision. You know what's interesting about this situation is that Rebecca was allowed to weigh in on this matter, on the matter of whether or not she would leave at this point in time. See, it was unusual in the ancient world for, for women to have any part in major decisions like this. You notice Rebecca is not consulted with regard to the marriage, but when the servant asks to leave immediately, the family allows Rebecca to give her consent. We have to remember that at this moment, when she's choosing to go with the servant, she's leaving her family instead of Isaac leaving his. And she and her family are aware that it's highly unlikely they would ever see each other again. And they're aware that when she goes, she's not going to have the protection and security of her family to fall back on. So when Rebecca said, I will go, she was giving up so much stuff. She was giving up her protection and her security. She's giving up her heritage and her family. And that's worth mentioning because Rebecca grew up in a family that didn't worship Yahweh. According to Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2, Prior to Abraham's call, his family served other gods. In other words, they were not monotheistic, nor were they worshipers of Yahweh, the one true God. So the, the background of Rebekah's family, like Abraham's, is not one of singular, singularly devoted people to the Lord God Almighty. And then we find out, if we skip ahead to Genesis chapter 31, that Rebecca's brother Laban, who's in the negotiations here, that he continued to worship other gods because he possessed household gods that his daughter Rachel stole from him. 
So Rebecca's in a family that's not obedient to the Lord God. But in this moment, nobody's talking about the gods of Terah. Nobody's talking about the gods of Laban. They're talking about the God of Abraham and Isaac. See, prior to Rebekah's decision, Abraham's servant went into great detail explaining to her and her family how he came to find her. You can see that in verses 34 through 49 of Genesis chapter 24. And multiple times during his presentation of this information, Abraham's servant mentioned God's name. You can see, um, you can see the Lord's name mentioned in verse 35, verse 40, verse 42, verse 44, and twice in verse 48. In all of those instances, your English translation likely printed the term LORD in all caps or small caps. When that happens, the word LORD is representing the presence of God's proper name, which is comprised of four consonants that amount to Y-H-W-H in English, and is pronounced either Yahweh or Yehovah, depending on who you talk to. My whole point of, of telling you that is that Rebecca is constantly hearing God's name in association with the orchestration of, of these remarkable events. As a result, she knows that if she marries Isaac, if she goes with this servant, she's joining into a family that has a faith system which worships and trusts and obeys Yahweh alone. So, when Rebecca said, I will go, she was making the decision not just to relocate to Canaan and not just to marry Isaac, but she's also making the decision to surrender to the will of Yahweh, the one true God. And that's an expectation that God has of all of us. God expects us to yield, to surrender, just like Rebecca. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24? He said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Those words, those, those words spoken by Jesus, they imply surrender. Denying one's self is a deliberate decision to give up, to yield to reorient your life around a new center. And I think Rebecca modeled such a denial of self as she came to accept that God is in control. And that's evident by the fact that she was willing to go even when it meant she would have to give up everything. And so when we talk about Rebecca, we're not just talking about somebody who sacrificially served. We're talking about somebody who unconditionally yielded to the will of God. And God sees those who unconditionally yield. But that's not all I believe God saw in Rebecca. Because God also sees those who faithfully follow. And that's where the most controversial story in the life of Isaac and Rebecca comes into play. But before we dive into the details of the whole blessing of Jacob instead of Esau account, in Genesis chapter 27, we first, we first need to notice some things that happen when Rebekah gets pregnant with Jacob and Esau. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 25, verses 22 through 28 for just a moment. It's Genesis chapter 25, verses 22 through 28. 
In this section of Scripture, we find out that, that Rebecca was barren for a time and that Isaac prayed for her to conceive, and, and she did. And after learning of her conception, we're told that the children struggled together within her. And also, that confused her. So we're told there in verse 22 as well that she went to inquire of the Lord. And as a result of his, this inquiry, God spoke to her. And this is what he said. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now there's a couple of important details to notice about Rebecca's pregnancy here. First, notice that Rebecca consulted God about her pregnancy when it got difficult. The fact that Rebecca, this woman from a background of worshiping other gods, the fact that she turned to the one true God in this moment of concern, it reveals a theological transformation in her life. I believe it shows that she's wholly devoted to Him at this point. It's not just her surrendering like she did that day when she followed the servant back to Isaac. She's surrendering everything. And I believe that her devotion to God, to Yahweh, is also evidenced by the fact that He speaks to her. She's only the second woman in the Bible to receive direct communication from God, the first being Hagar. Now we know God communicated to I should say the third person because I forgot to include Eve there. And we know God also communicated to Sarah via Abraham. But He speaks directly to Rebecca. Now pay attention to the oracle that God gave her. It indicates three things. First, it indicates that she would have twins. Second, it indicates that there would be a multi-generational conflict between these brothers and their families. And third, it indicates that the eldest would ultimately serve the youngest. Now that last part is especially important because it's not customary for the eldest child to serve the youngest child. The eldest son was the one who's supposed to receive the birthright. That's the double portion of the inheritance. And, and, and the eldest son is supposed to receive the blessing. That's the assignment of patriarchal leadership. That, that's the designation of who is the head of the clan after the father passes away. So when God said the older shall serve the younger, he was indicating that the youngest of Isaac and Rebekah's children was to receive the blessing, that the youngest is going to be the one through whom the covenant continues. Now there's something else to notice here in Genesis chapter 25. If you look at verse 8, I mean, I'm sorry, verse 28 of Genesis chapter 25, you'll see that Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, now, to be fair, when the text says Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob, it's not saying the converse. It's not saying that Isaac hated Jacob and Rebekah hated Esau. The use of the word love here really is not an indicator that the other child is unloved by that particular parent, but instead it's used in the sense of favoring one child over another. In other words, Jacob, I'm sorry, Isaac favored Esau and Rebekah favored Jacob. And we're told why Isaac favored Esau. Because he ate of his game. He loved the food he brought home from his hunts. But we're not specifically told why Rebecca favored Isaac. Maybe it's because of the oracle she received from God. 
Maybe it's because she knows via God that the eldest will serve the youngest. With that background of her pregnancy and, and their favoritism in, the, in the, the parent-child relationships, with that background, let's look at what happens in Genesis chapter 27, verses 1 through 4. Genesis chapter 27, verses 1 through 4. This is where the blessing comes into play. So beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 27, we read, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. And then Isaac, then Isaac instructed Esau to go hunt a wild animal and prepare it for him so that he could have a delicious meal. And after that, he would bless Esau before he dies. Then you can pick up the reading in verse 5. Genesis chapter 27 and verse 5, we discover that Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau. And once Esau left on his hunting trip, she jumped into action with Jacob. She told Jacob what was happening and told him what he would have to do in order to receive the blessing in Esau's stead. Jacob was concerned that her plan wouldn't work and worried about bringing a curse onto himself rather than a blessing. So Rebekah said in verse 13 of Genesis 27, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Do what I tell you. At this point in the story, we don't think ill of Isaac, but we do think ill of Rebekah. It's in this story, in this account, in this situation, that we see Rebekah as conniving and deceitful. But I think a few observations about this situation need to be acknowledged. First, we have to remember that Isaac favors Esau over Jacob, just as Rebekah favors Jacob over Esau. Rebekah is not the only one guilty of having a favorite child in this situation. Second thing we need to acknowledge is the possibility and probability that Rebekah shared God's oracle about the older serving the younger with her husband Isaac. When you journey into the future of the book of Genesis, you'll see Joseph having these incredible dreams where God is communicating to him. And before he's ever sold into slavery, he shared his divinely inspired dreams about his family bowing down to him. And he shared those with his brothers and his parents. It got him into a little bit of trouble. But I imagine just as Joseph couldn't contain himself, couldn't go without sharing what he, he, the message he received from God via those dreams, I imagine that Rebecca couldn't wait to tell Isaac either. So we must concede the possibility that Isaac is aware of God's oracle. And third, we need to notice that Isaac only summons Esau for this blessing ceremony. That was not the way these ceremonies were supposed to be done. These blessing ceremonies were such important events that they were supposed to bring in all of the children. All the children were supposed to be present so that the father could speak to each one in order so that the succession of authority within the family would be organized. 
Yeah, that's how Jacob did it. If you get to Genesis chapter 49, before he dies, he has all of his sons come in. And he begins speaking to each one, and he bestows the blessing on his fourth oldest, Judah. Because that's how it was supposed to be done. And so when you consider those three factors, they leave open the possibility that Isaac himself is operating deceitfully. As one commentator said, it seems clear that Isaac intended to bypass Jacob completely. He either ignored or forgot Yahweh's prophecy to Rebekah. And that's where Rebekah runs interference. She devised a plan that deceived Isaac into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. But I want you to think for a moment, why did she do it? Did she do this just because Jacob was her favorite or did she do it because there was a greater motivation in play? I want you to notice the difference between one statement that Isaac said to Esau and how Rebekah quoted Isaac back to Jacob. So in Genesis chapter 27 and verse 4, Isaac instructed Esau to hunt game, prepare it, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now remember, Rebekah was listening, and so she repeated Isaac's words to Jacob. In verse 7 of Genesis 27. But here's how she said, Isaac said it. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord, before I die. Now that may not seem like a big deal, but Rebecca, unlike Isaac, acknowledges that the blessing is before the Lord. I think this difference matters because Rebecca shows an awareness of something that Isaac seemingly is ignoring. That this whole blessing thing involves God. And I think that's why she intervened. I think she was aware that what Isaac was about to do would contradict the prophecy that God revealed to her during her pregnancy. And therefore, she has got to get involved to make sure that God's will is fulfilled. If this is the case, then Rebecca is the precursor to Zipporah, who was Moses' wife and who ran interference uh, for her husband. She intervened for his benefit in Exodus chapter 4 when the Lord sought to put him to death because he had not circumcised his son yet. And in comes Zipporah, resolving the conflict that Moses had with God that Moses wasn't recognizing. And I think this also makes Rebekah the precursor to Abigail. Abigail became a wife of David, but before she was David's wife, she intervened on David's behalf to keep him from committing vengeful murder against Nabal, who was her current husband in 1 Samuel chapter 25. I bring up Zipporah and, and Abigail because we don't think poorly of them. We see them as faithful women who helped to make sure that the men in their life did not go against God. And I think Rebecca is trying to do the same thing. I don't think Rebecca is operating in this story to promote her own will. I think she's operating in this story to prevent Isaac from going against the will of God. And I think this is supported by, by something else that happens in the story of Isaac and Rebecca. At the very end of chapter 27, we read about Rebekah's complaint about Esau's wives. She can't stand these Hittite women. If you go back to Genesis 26, at the very end of that chapter, we find out that Esau married some Hittite women, women of the land. 
And Rebekah complained to Isaac about Esau's marriages to these Hittite women. And that spurred Isaac to send Jacob to Rebekah's brother Laban to procure a wife. So in the grand scheme of things, if you look at Genesis chapter 27, verse 46, through Genesis chapter 28, verse 2, you see that Rebekah, not Isaac, Rebekah is the one who initiated the same marriage policy for Jacob, who is the next heir of the covenant. She initiated the same marriage policy that Abraham established for Isaac. I think even that little tidbit of a story shows us something about Rebecca's faithfulness. In all matters, she's looking to the will of God. See, when Rebecca helped Jacob obtain Isaac's blessing, she was ensuring that her family was obedient to God. And that's an expectation that God has of all of us. God expects us to pursue His will even when others are not. Do you remember, do you remember what Jesus told Peter? In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 23, when Peter rebuked him for talking about dying. Now, you probably remember the part where he says, get behind me, Satan. But Jesus also said, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus had to correct Peter in that moment because Peter's mind was set on his own will rather than the will of God. And we have to remember that we're called to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And we're called to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. And so so failure to do that, failure to seek first God's kingdom, failure to set our minds on the things that are above is a failure to prioritize our Lord's will. And I think Rebecca modeled a heart and a mind that were so committed to the will of God that she was going to pursue it and prioritize it in every facet of life. And this is evident by the fact that she was willing to go against her husband's wishes to make sure that God's will happened. God sees those who faithfully follow. That made me think about this little spacecraft, which I've told you about before. See, the the picture on the left side of the screen is a Voyager 1. On September 5th, 1977, NASA launched this spacecraft called Voyager 1. It was supposed to travel to Jupiter and Saturn and and to some moons uh, around those planets, take pictures and send back some scientific data. In fact, the two pictures you have on the right side of the screen are images taken of Saturn on top and Jupiter on bottom from Voyager 1. But here's what's fascinating. Its primary mission of going to Jupiter and Saturn, ended on November 20th, 1980. But that little spacecraft spacecraft just kept going. It's still going, and it's still transmitting some data. It's traveled over 13.8 billion miles from Earth, and now, more than 40 years after its launch, it's left the solar system. 
It's still sending back information. And it's the most distant man-made object from the earth. In fact, Voyager's one, Voyager 1's extended mission is expected to continue until sometime between 2025 and 2030, at which point its generators will no longer supply enough electric power to operate its scientific instruments. NASA's already shut down some of its instruments. But this little spacecraft that was made for a, 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 a few years mission has gone above and beyond the call of duty. And I think that's a good analogy to Rebecca. When we were first introduced to Rebecca, I imagine that most of us didn't think much of her be, beyond being a side note in the history of the Israelite forefathers. But upon closer examination, I think it's fair to say that like Voyager 1, Rebecca did more than was expected of her. And today I, I want to consider for just a moment what God sees when He looks at you. Does he see someone who is willing to do more than is required of him or her? Because they recognize they're ultimately serving him? Does God see someone, when he looks at you, does he see someone who will surrender to their life to him regardless of the risks? And when God looks at you, does he see someone who's willing to promote and pursue his will even when everyone else around them is pursuing their own. When God looks at you, it doesn't matter if you're a, a man or a woman, a husband or a wife or neither, a mother, a father or neither. When God looks at you, does he see another Rebecca? Let's not forget what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. If there's something we're going to learn from the life of Rebecca, I think it should be that faithfulness matters. So today, are you a Rebecca? And if you're not, what needs to change? What needs to change so that you will be more like 